We're in Paul's letter to the churches of the first century, and the main topic is what we call justification. Justification is right standing with God. If you're a justified person, it means that the God of the universe, God our creator, is your friend and not your enemy. He counts your sins as forgiven. He considers you as having met all of his standards for how to live. He promises to bless you with all of his goodness and his presence, both in this life and in the life to come. And he wants you to rest assured that nothing in this world will separate you from his love, no matter what you do or what others do. So justification is that condition which brings us into all those benefits. And Paul has been arguing in this letter that you get into that condition not by doing righteous deeds, but through faith in Jesus who bore the curse for our sins. That's how we experience the life that God intended for us, the best life that there is. So that's the good news that Paul taught in the churches, but there were others who were saying, no, faith isn't enough. You also need to keep certain laws that God gave to Israel that marked them out as his people. So only then, if you do these things, can you have all those benefits that we just listed. And so we have this letter that Paul wrote to counter that with many different arguments. And today we're going to hear him come at it from a new angle, which is to talk about what the law of God what his moral commands for mankind, what was it actually intended to do? And what was it not intended to do? Because the law is at, at stake here. That's what these teachers are trying to bring into the equation for your salvation. So I've titled this message, Why Then the Law? Which is the question that Paul asks in verse 19. And this is going to be a two-part sermon. Why the Law Part 1 and Why the Law Part 2 will finish up next week with verses 23 to 29, but today we're reading from verses 15 to 22, and just as a, a heads up, uh, this is not the simplest and most easy logic to follow in all of Paul's writings. Uh, it's not linear. It has overlapping arguments. Some of it's a little tricky, so we're not going to unpack every phrase but we do have the help of the Holy Spirit to understand God's Word. So, let's read from God's Word in Galatians three fifteen through 22, and then we'll pray. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. 
Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself and your truth through your word. And some of it is harder to understand than others, but yet your, your heart is and your intention is that we would understand. The secret things belong to you, but the things that are revealed belong to us that we might have life. So we ask you, Lord, that from this paragraph, these things that we just read, you would pull out of it those nuggets, those truths that will give us encouragement, life, faith, hope, confidence. Help us to see the world from your perspective. Help us to see ourselves and our future from your perspective. And we ask you to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, Mary and I were on vacation visiting family in uh, Wisconsin. And I had a really good conversation with a friend uh, of one of the relatives who was there. And in this conversation, I think that he expressed the tension that many people feel about God's rules and laws and boundaries, a, a tension that this passage addresses. So this friend is Jewish by upbringing and by practice, um, but he described himself as not fully an, an adherent to Judaism, but he values spirituality, uh, the, the pursuit of the divine or the transcendent, however you go about that. So we got into talking about Jesus a person that he admires as an example of empathy, of compassion, forgiveness, goodness. And Jesus is definitely all of those things. But I told him about what we might call the hard lines that Jesus laid down, the, the commands, the boundaries, the non-negotiables, um, one of which is in his saying in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's this exclusivity about Jesus that doesn't allow for any idea that all roads lead to heaven and that what we do doesn't matter. And as long as you have some kind of faith, that's good enough. No, according to Jesus, what we do does matter. There's a moral law of God to obey, and none of us obeys it as we should. So we have sin that needs to be atoned for. The righteousness we need has to be given to us in order to come to God the Father and be at peace with Him. And Jesus is saying, He's the only one who can give you those things. Atone for your sins and give you the righteousness you need to be at peace with God. Well, it was those hard lines that this friend had trouble with that were somewhat upsetting to him. Um, 
It seemed to him like law, like hard lines, non-negotiables. These are a bad thing. You shouldn't be too dogmatic about those. It just leads to division and maybe even oppression as people force their religious standards on other people. Surely, we don't need law and boundaries and hard lines that can't be that important. That was his view. But there are others, churched people, who can also fall into this, who know the rules and the commands of God are very important, but we misunderstand what those laws can do for us. We also can have a wrong idea about the law. Some of us, like the teachers who were influencing the Galatian churches, believed that by doing the commandments, it would make you righteous before God and that if you keep them, you will be saved. What Paul is going to argue for in this passage, and the one we'll look at next week, is that the law, God's commands for how we are to live, has a necessary place in our lives. It's just not a saving place. Both law and promise, both rules and grace, both works and faith are good in their proper spheres, and we need both of them in order to understand the need for the gospel and the goodness of the gospel. So let's dive into the passage for today. Paul starts with an illustration, and then he follows that up with two questions. And while he's doing that and answering those questions, he explains this process about how we should think about the law of God and its place in our lives. So let's start with the illustration, and here's the point that it makes. As in a will, God's blessing comes by His promise, not by your performance. <clears throat> That's the illustration and its meaning. As in a will, God's blessing comes by His promise, not by performance. Here's verse 15 again to set this up. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So this is an illustration from real life to make a point about how we receive all God's goodness. The man-made covenant that Paul describes here is what we would call today a last will and testament. We know that because the illustration wraps up in verse 18, talking about an inheritance. So we're talking about a will. It's a legal document that explains how your estate is going to be passed on to somebody else when you die. It's a legal promise by the author about what they're going to give away and who's going to receive it and what the terms are for receiving it. Mary and I had one drafted up at the end of 2020, not because we were afraid of dying, despite 2020, but it was because, like, everything shut down and we have time to do this now. Like, you don't get to a will, like, when life is busy. You get, it's got it's to slow down. That's the thing you put off forever. <clears throat> but anyway, we had one drafted up, and we got a lawyer involved so that it would all be very legal, and it would be very clear and, and binding. We're going to say, this is what we're giving away, such as it is. Hope it's still there when we die. Um, here's who's going to get it. And it was unilateral. The terms are, you just get it. If your name is in the will, you just get it. That's our decision. You don't need to do anything. 
<clears throat> That's what a will is like. Now, in modern wills, the authors, the testators, can change the will at any time. But in Paul's example, he's thinking of a will that not even the authors can change. Once it's been ratified, either through some legal procedure or because the authors have died, it can't be changed by anybody. The terms for receiving the inheritance are settled for good. Once it's in place, nobody can say, well, that doesn't really apply anymore. Um, let's cut Susie out of the deal and I get double. Nobody can do that. Nobody can say, well, Joey only gets his share if he finishes college and stops drinking. Like, nobody can add any new conditions to it. Once it was ratified, that's it. You don't change it. It remains in force. No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, where's Paul going with this? Well, in verses 16 to 18, he says, A will like that is how we should think about the way God granted his many blessings to Abraham way back in history. God made promises to Abraham and to his offspring, it says. They were promises like these. There's actually quite a few that God made, but here's a couple. Genesis 17, 8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That was one of the promises. Genesis twenty two seventeen, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the heaven, stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So God promised Abraham, among other things, that he and his offspring, his progeny, would experience God's presence would experience his blessing, they would have ultimate victory over their enemies, and they would have this everlasting possession, this eternal place for their dwelling. That sounds like the promises of salvation, don't they? Because they are. This is the inheritance God promised to give in his will, so to speak. And the recipients were Abraham and his offspring. And the terms were unilateral. God says, this is what I'm going to give you. <clears throat> it's my decision. It's yours. All you have to do is believe it and receive it. But here's what happened hundreds of years later after these promises to Abraham. Verse 17 says, the law came. 430 years later. This is the law God gave to his people Israel in the wilderness at Sinai. It was full of rules. The Ten Commandments being a summary of like all the rest of the commandments where those ten are fleshed out in more and more detail. So there are all these commandments, these details about how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. So if you're a descendant of Abraham... You might think, well, the terms of the covenant, the terms of the will have changed because now God has given us these, this law. These must be the new terms for how we get our inheritance. Now it isn't a unilateral gift 
of God to those who believe, now it's belief plus doing all these things. Why else would God give us the law and then tell us to keep it? It seems like the terms have changed. But Paul says in verse 17 that the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So the terms of the will as a unilateral gift are still in place. They haven't changed. The law didn't change how you get the inheritance. It didn't become keep the law and you will qualify. It remained trust the promises of God and you will qualify. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, here's how this relates to the Galatian Christians and to you and me today. Where do we enter the picture? How do we get in on the inheritance, the blessings that are described for Abraham that also are described for us in the New Testament as believers How do we get in on God's presence, his blessing, his ultimate victory over all of our enemies and an everlasting place to dwell in? Well, the link is at the end of verse 16 where Paul explains what he means by the offspring of Abraham. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, the promise was given to Abraham, but it had Christ in view ultimately. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, whom God the Father appointed to be the heir of all things. That's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1-2. He's the Son and heir that this is ultimately pointing to. And the good news for us is that the inheritance that Christ receives, we receive if we are in Christ if we have Christ's righteousness credited to us, if we believe in him and receive from him that status, his his inheritance becomes our inheritance by faith. That's how we, we enter the picture. That's the connection that Paul makes in verses 21 to 22, where he says this, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So we'll come back to some of that later, but the thing to notice for now is the ending. The promise, the inheritance of all God's blessings is given to those who believe, to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. We share His inheritance. We become joint heirs with Christ of everything that Christ is heir to, by faith. That's what he's saying. And it's a unilateral act of God. You just believe. You just receive it by faith. That's how we qualify for God's blessings, not by law-keeping. Or as I said it earlier, as in a will, God's blessing comes by his promise, not by your performance. Okay, that got a little complicated. That was long. It looks like we're a little bit tired. Okay, maybe not. Maybe I'm seeing that wrong. 
But let me give you another illustration that's a little simpler and maybe easier to remember. Um, let's say I want to give you a thousand dollars, and I yeah, there we go. So how, do I hear an amen? Um, I could say one of two things. I could just promise that tomorrow I'm going to give you a thousand dollars, no strings attached. All you have to do is believe me, and open your hand. That's receiving $1,000 by promise. Or I could say, tomorrow I'm going to give you $1,000 if you clean your whole house and make lunch for me. Now you have to do something to earn it. That's receiving $1,000 by law. The first offer is $1,000 by promise. The second one is $1,000 by law. Paul says we receive all the blessings of God's goodness the first way, by promise, not by law. Or we could say we receive it by grace through faith and not by works. The moment that you add a condition, like needing to provide lunch, or in the case of the Galatians, becoming circumcised, it's no longer according to promise. Now it's according to law. And verse 18 says, God gave the inheritance by a promise, not by the law. It's unilateral. I'm giving you this. You just have to believe me. You got to believe my promises. That's how Abraham got it. That's how we get it, by believing in Christ. We get in on his inheritance. That's the amazing grace of God to us that he would set things up that way? I mean, just think if you had to keep every single command of Scripture all the time, 100%, no bad days, for your entire life, because that's his standard if you're going to do it by law. Because we learned last week in Galatians 3.10, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. All things, every corner of the law, you must do all the time. That's the standard if you're going to get it by law. But God knows we can't do it. So he sent Jesus to bear the curse for our sinful failures while at the same time keeping God's law perfectly. And God has arranged it so that you and I can have our sins atoned for and Christ's perfect record given to us by faith, by putting us in right standing with God in that manner, and then we become heirs of all those amazing things. That's amazing grace. That's love beyond degree. Now that being the case, it leads to a question. Why then the law? That's the question of verse 19. Why then the law? What's the point of all those rules that God gave to his people that governed their behavior and their speech and their hearts and their worship, why did God give the commands of Scripture if none of it secures our right standing with him? That's a good question. And Paul expected the Galatians to ask it, which is why he goes there next. And you might ask that question yourself for a couple reasons. You might ask, what's the point of the law? Because like the friend that I mentioned earlier, 
<clears throat> you'd be glad if the rules just went away. If we didn't have boundaries and decrees that restrict what we want to do, wouldn't it just be better if we didn't have those hard lines, those do's and don'ts, those standards that we're supposed to live by? Or you might be asking, why the law? Because like the teachers that were upsetting the Galatian churches, you really like the idea of doing things that, so that you can be right with God. There's something about deserving God's favor by being a good person that feels right. It feels good. I, I did it. And so it's baffling to be told, well, none of that qualifies you for righteousness in God's sight. So what is the point of the law? We have our first answer in verse 19, and I say it's the first answer because it's only part one. Part two is next week, which gives us more information. But here's the first answer Paul gives. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. So we'll stop there. It was added because of transgressions. This is one of those places in Scripture where we wish Paul had said more that he would have explained what he meant by because of transgressions, because he doesn't really go on to explain that. Um, he kind of refers to it a little bit, incidentally, later on. There's some clues later on, and I'll mention those, but the statement kind of just stands by itself, and so Bible scholars who are very wanting to know, <laughs> tell me exactly what that means. There, there are lots of ideas, and I've got one commentary I read where um, the guy listed the top five and said, it could be this, but maybe not, and it could be this one, but maybe not, and well, it could be all of them. There's, but anyway, here's the best one, we think, maybe. Um, that's how people are looking at it. I think, though, that we can say something with certainty. It's not like those were all wrong and nobody has any idea. There, I think we can say at least this much. Paul's statement, the law was added because of transgressions, at least means it was added to deal with our sins in some way. And the way that it does that is by exposing the wrong things we do as transgressions by showing us the way of righteousness. To transgress means to step over a line. It means to deviate from an established boundary. So the law provides that line, it provides that boundary, and it spells out in detail, this is how your creator wants you to live, and now we know and we realize, uh-oh, I've stepped over that. I'm a transgressor. The law is like a mirror that we hold up to our lives, and it shows us our flaws as we compare what we do to what God says we should do, and then we become aware of guilt. We become aware of having crossed the line. I'm a transgressor. I'm a sinner. And there's a consequence for it. We find that same idea in Romans chapter, chapter 7, for example. In Romans 7.12, Paul defends the goodness of God's law. And he says, The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So everything God tells us to do is blameless, it's morally right, it's good for us, it's good in God's sight. It's how things should be. Everything that it says about our beliefs, our attitudes, and our words and our conduct 
It's all right. It's all good. It's good, and it promotes a good society where we love God and love one another. However, the law has this effect of showing us our sin and our guilt. So Paul says in Romans 7, 7 and 9, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. In other words, before I knew the law, I felt alive, I felt like I was doing fine, but then the law showed me the boundaries and that I had stepped over them and I was breaking God's holy, righteous, and good law and then I died. I became aware of my guilt and my deserved punishment before, I didn't see what, what I was doing as sin. I didn't see it in its true colors until I had this moral standard that showed me how sinful I am. So when Paul says the law was added because of transgressions, I think it's safe to say at the very least he means we need God's moral standards in our lives to be spelled out in the details of do this or don't do that. Because without it, we wouldn't be aware of how sinful we really are. It reminds me of the effect of one of these radar-enabled speed limit signs that you might have seen around. You know, the kind, they, they show the speed limit, and then there's this projection of what your speed is, right next to the number. <laughs> so you immediately know, am I above or below, <laughs> right? Well, there's one of those in our neighborhood when I go for runs. And I went for a run one day, and I'm coming up to this speed checker sign. And all these cars are going by. And the speed limit is 35. And it's, it's showing their speed, 38, 40. And if you're going more than 40, it just blinks, too fast, too fast. <laughs> right? So all these cars are going by, that's the numbers that they're getting, and then they're all gone, and then it's just me and the radar gun, and it shows my speed. Six. <laughs> Six miles per hour. That's less than half the speed of the fastest marathoners, you know, marathoners, and I'm just going for like a two-miler. Like... All of a sudden, and I was feeling really good about myself up to that point. I was feeling like I'm, I'm locked in, I'm having a good run, and then I see the number six. And all of a sudden, my good feelings about how good my run was sort of just disappeared, right? The truth was exposed when my actual performance was compared to an objective standard. When it comes to God's law, None of us is doing as well as we might think we are. We can feel we're doing great. We can feel like we're good enough to earn a spot in heaven, but until we face the objective standard of God's law, we don't realize how far short we really fall. Just imagine, just, just when you compare yourself to some of these objective standards, like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How are we doing with that one? Or give thanks in all circumstances. Have you grumbled in the last week or month? Or always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Wow. Always to everyone do good. Okay, how are we doing on that standard? 
<clears throat> suddenly we realize I'm not even close if I'm taking God's law seriously. There's no way I can achieve righteousness on my own, a righteousness that would be good enough to be in right standing with God. The law shows me I'm a transgressor. And this effect, leads, this effect of the law leads to some hard realizations, some hard truths. One of them is that the law, even though it's good, can't give me life. It can't give me access to all those wonderful blessings of God. Verse 21 says, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good, but it just can't give me life because I can't keep it. It's too much. The bar's too high. And so I realize that I've failed and I'm subject to God's judgment. That's one of the effects of the law. The other realization about being a transgressor is that my sin and guilt traps me in a kind of captivity. Verse 22 says, The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Imprisoned. We, we come under the curse of the Scripture, the law. We're no longer free in and of ourselves, to come into God's inheritance. Um, it's a very similar sentiment that Paul says in Romans 7.10, where he says, the very commandment that promised life proved death to me, because all of a sudden I became aware, wow, I deserve God's judgment. There's this captivity that, I, that I'm in, I can't get out of this. So taking all those things together, here's how we summarize the first answer to the question, why then the law? The law was added so that ancient Israel and first century Galatians and 21st century residents of Aurora and Denver would realize we're transgressors and we're not going to be able to get the life that God has for us by trying hard to be righteous. We just can't do it. At least... That's what we would realize if we took the law seriously. Now, that sounds pretty depressing, a little bleak. And it would be if that were the last word on the reason why God gave the law. But it isn't the last word. There's one more question, and the answer brings us back to the good news of the gospel. The question Paul anticipates and says is this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is it contrary to the promises of God? In other words, it, it seems like God has put two opposing things out there. Promise and law. And if God wants life for us, if he wants us to experience his loving presence, his favor, his blessing in this life and for eternity, then why did he give us rules and commandments that can't get us there? Why imprison us under sin and guilt if the goal is life? The law seems contrary to the promises of God. Wouldn't it have been better just not to have it? That's the tension that makes the law seem like a bad thing, and you can feel that tension for a couple reasons. One would be maybe you're trying really hard to meet God's standards, but it only leaves you feeling defeated and guilty, and it's endlessly frustrating. Or, like the friend I was talking to in Wisconsin, it just seems like all those hard lines, those religious rules, they only interfere with our experience of real you know, spiritual life. They just lead to, to division and oppression, and we'd be better off just living and let live. <clears throat> Is the law contrary 
to the promises of God? Is it going in a different direction? Is it hindering us in some way from receiving life? Well, Paul says, certainly not. The law is not against God's promises. In fact, it's what God uses to make us look to Christ to receive life. Here's his explanation in verse 22. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That is, the law shows us our desperate situation as transgressors. And it did that so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So here's what he's saying. We need God's laws to show us how trapped we are in sin and guilt. We need that awareness so that we can look outside ourselves for the answer to our situation. Once we find out we can't get life by our own power, then we're in a position to receive life in the only way we can get it, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. The promise, God's favorable presence of his blessings in this life and after death, the promise comes to those who believe in Jesus Christ as our curse-bearing Savior. It does not come to those who think they can work hard enough to qualify. God never intended His moral commands to save us. Righteousness doesn't come by the law. It comes by faith in Jesus who, who trades His righteousness for our sin. One ancient writer put it this way, law without grace can expose disease but it cannot heal. What heals, what brings us into God's promise, what gives life is Jesus crucified in our place and for our sins. And by faith in Him, we receive all the blessings. We receive the inheritance He deserves. Let me bring this to a close. Here's what we can take away. God's commands for how we're to live they have a necessary place in our lives. The law is good. It's just not a saving place. Law and promise, rules and grace, works and faith are both good in their proper spheres, and we need both in order to understand and believe the gospel. We have to keep them together. Because law without promise doesn't lead to life. It leads to oppressive burden of trying to be good enough for God by keeping His commands, but you'll never get there. It will either make you self-righteous because you think you're doing a pretty good job, or it'll burden you with a constant load of guilt because you know you're not doing a good job. But promise without law doesn't lead to life either. It leads to the mistaken idea that there's no standard that we have to meet. God accepts everybody as long as you're not a completely terrible person because after all, God is love. But that doesn't lead to life either. The gospel says Jesus kept the law so you could receive the promise. He met the demands of God's law in his righteous life and sin-bearing death so you could receive the promise of life through faith. That's good news that we can live with. And we're going to hear more about that theme next, next Sunday. Let's pray. 
Lord, we ask you to get this into not just our ears, but into our minds and ultimately into our hearts. Because we want to live in the good of it. You intend for us to be released. You intend for us not to be under a burden, not to be under a weight, not carrying around things that Jesus already atoned for. So help us to embrace it, to live in the good of it, to be freed, to believe your promise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.